welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 39, and man, it's a great one. Greg Sankey, commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, joins me to discuss all of the variables of his job, things that he faces every single day, his greatest concerns as he moves forward in that role the greatest challenges that he faces every single day when he sits down in the head office down there in Birmingham, Alabama, what it's like to actually be in that head chair compared to what you think it might be, how he got here, his amazing journey from Auburn, New York, where he grew up to Birmingham as the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. And not only that, we also discuss pressing issues in collegiate athletics today like potential player compensation, his thoughts on whether or not these uh, collegiate players should be compensated for playing major college football or major college basketball, whether uh, he believes in the current system that is the college football playoff, what is his thought on potential expansion. We get into many different things, and it was a fascinating conversation, one that uh, really inspired me, certainly one that educated me, and it's going to have the same impact on you. Look, this man, Greg Sankey, is in one of the most prestigious, most important, most scrutinized roles in all of sport in this country. Commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. And what an honor to have the opportunity to spend 25 or 30 minutes with him, really digging into his leadership philosophy, his path to now, and what he sees when he looks into the SEC crystal ball moving forward. Here's our conversation on the Marty Smith's America podcast with SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. So, Greg, let's just start with your path. I don't know that journey. How's a guy from Auburn, New York, end up as (laughs) SEC Commissioner? How's that work? Well, my my quick vision for life was to be coaching and teaching at the high school level, and I ended up right out of college working in a college setting, earned a master's at Syracuse, had to complete an internship, did that in Louisiana, which was just one of those great adventures in life, and then went from Northwestern State University in Natchitoches, Louisiana, to uh, their conference office and became commissioner of that league, the Southland Conference, at age 31. And during that time, got to know Mike Slive. Mike's an upstate New York guy. He was born and raised in Utica, New York, and we became friends. And one day he said, would you ever think about working in the SEC office? And I said, I haven't, but I will. And that put me here and and uh, had some success and opportunities, had some chances to leave and, and, and stayed, and then went through a full search process upon Mike's announced retirement and Boom, here we are. That's the the quick version. Where could you have gone if you had so chosen to leave? Uh, you know, I almost, uh, there was a, a weekend where I was the athletics director at Colgate University. I went through that search process, actually went up to visit with the trustees. And in uh, some ways, it was a, a great professional moment. In some ways, it was one of those low points of my professional life where I said, you know what? the day of the press conference, this really isn't for me. So those who've seen, you know, Bobby Kremens, Billy Donovan, there's some great people who have said, yeah, that's the right job. And then wait a second. So I, I pulled one of those, 
I was involved in a search of the Mid-America Conference that went down the road a long way back in about 2009 and and just decided that wasn't the right situation. And a number of things that came to me in college athletics, you know, I've always wanted to work in sports, but in an educational context as opposed to a professional level. And, you know, just was always challenged here and was learning uh, every day and decided to stay. And again, that, that opportunity to be a part of the search for the commissioner uh, manifested itself. And, you know, it's now uh, been over three and a half years in the seat and things are going well. I think they're going very well. <laughs> I yeah. think you made the right choice on that path. And I want to get to philosophy and all that in a minute, but uh, staying with the theme of, of growing up. Did you grow up a Syracuse fan? Yeah, oh, absolutely. They they made a run at the Final Four under a head coach named Roy Danforth, and Jim Beheim was an assistant in 1975. It was John Wooden's last uh, year as coach at UCLA, and, and UCLA won the, that Final Four. And I, I was listening on the radio at that time, and the Big East Conference did not exist. They played in what was called the ECAC and went through its tournament format and a much smaller NCAA tournament format. But, Marty, that was when this notion of college sports came alive. I was 11 years old. Uh, it was also that year when, when I won the cleanest desk award at school, which if you saw my <laughs> desk right now, that was the one month in my life my desk was clean. And the the prize was a book. And I chose They Call Me Coach, which was John Wooden's biography. I actually still have the book that I won back in sixth grade in 1975. It's in my office, and I'm looking at it right now. And all of that was a moment for me that, that kind of created this notion of going to college, having the opportunity to work in sports, and you know maybe some, some way, somewhere way long down the road I might be able to work in a college sports setting. How would you describe your business philosophy? Well... Business leadership, there's kind of a bunch of nouns that fit in there. Um, it's high expectations for the people around me. Uh, the expectation is for myself to act with integrity. Uh, I learned a long time ago that I have to live by a set of principles that inform my priorities. Uh, I want my family to be able to thrive, but I also want to work hard and in a dedicated way. Uh, I want to show up to work with people who are excited about what they do with whom I want to work. Uh, I want to set high expectations uh, and see those expectations achieved as opposed to always having to, to prod and move people along. Um, I think that uh, in what I do, it is a highly relational business. So we're talking mid-morning. I've already visited with four athletics directors on phone calls about looking forward type issues. Uh, did the same thing yesterday, and that's a, a thumbnail sketch of the priorities. Uh, but we also want to excel at this level. There are high expectations, so we talk about from a vision, uh, graduating every student athlete, winning every championship, and having the opportunity to change the world because of doing those two things very well. Who and what shaped that approach? Well, you know, my dad is uh, is a welder. He's a a uh, union pipe fitter, and my grandfather was his stepfather. And you know, there weren't any, there were not any paid vacations. It was uh, get up early and go to work. I had two summers where I actually worked 
and the construction of a nuclear power plant where you know, you're up at five, you had to be on the job at seven, you worked a, a 10 hour day, the pay was good, and you worked six days a week uh, on that job. And, you know, it was kind of work and come home and rest and go back to work. And it was just that cycle. Uh, watching him and, and knowing uh, how he uh, met the needs of our family, my mom's energy, there's a lot of of um, myself that I've taken just from watching them, not because they sat me down and said, here's the way life has to be, but watching how they live. My mom earned her college degree in her 40s. They never overtly said, you're going to college, but it was like this expectation that was always present along with this um, really uh, significant work ethic uh, around care for family and, and maintaining relationships around you. And then, you know, through my professional career, I've had the opportunity to work uh, with uh, four or five really, really good leaders and then stop and watch other people around me. Uh, Marty, one of the great things for me is I've been in these rooms since 1989 with the athletic leadership um, from Division One, And you can kind of sit in the back and watch and listen and learn a lot if you're smart enough to do that, that you don't always have to be I didn't have a phone to be on to check Twitter at that point, so <laughs> you had a much more engaged listening opportunity. All of that combined to make me who I am today, and part of the challenge for me is that it's not static, that that learning has to be a, a lifetime commitment, which is is central to who I am. Who do you think you are right now in January of 2019 compared to who you were on March 13, 2015, when you officially took the job as the eighth commissioner of the Southeastern Conference? Yeah, good research on dates there, man. Um, you know, that day there, there was a relief. Um, I remember I, I gave you my, my bio. My wife and I, at the end of that, that day, back in March of 2015, had a moment where I looked at her and we hugged and I said, it worked. And she said, what worked? And I said, all of it, the decision to take a job, to not take a job, to be on this committee or go to that meeting or, or not go. I said, it worked. So on that day, there was a great sense of relief. Uh, today, my stomach uh, continually is in a knot, if you will, just the intensity of the role. Um, you don't know what it's like to sit in the chair at the end of the hall until you literally sit in the chair at the end of the hall. So I had the opportunity for six and a half years to lead a smaller conference. Uh, I knew a little bit of that. Uh, the intensity here um, is is much greater than anything uh, I'd ever experienced. So to really get to the, the question, uh, I have a much greater awareness about the significance of what I say um, and its meaning on a national stage. And so I'm much more careful, uh, perhaps, than I have been. I'm much more intentional about taking time for myself every day. Uh, otherwise, uh, my days are just overrun with issues. Uh, I'm a lot more open to communication seven days a week because I understand better today uh, that that's the job. And I'm probably more focused... Uh, I am more focused on what's next than what is. So our staff has to, to deal with what is today. Uh, from time to time, I engage in those issues. 
but the real expectation is that we're looking to the future or around the corner to see what's next and make sure that we're fully prepared for whatever realities may manifest themselves. What's next? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, we 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 uh, we just went. We just completed a football season, and during that football season, we were talking about what's next. You know, the the world of attention around officiating in every sport is very different. So we have been in meaningful discussions about how do we communicate more effectively uh, about that aspect of what we do. Uh, we've taken a long look, knowing that in 2023 we have a conclusion date around uh, our contractual relationship with CBS for broadcasting our first pick uh, football games. We announced in November an affiliation with uh, Evolution Media, Creative Artist Agency, CAA Television, which is five years in advance of that date to help us prepare because that world is changing so quickly. You know, we're waiting for a judge's decision and some litigation around uh, college athletics. Uh, part of your question will be answered by that judge's decision and, and what plays out next. Um, we want to make sure in the future we have high expectations. So I see in this conference continuing enrollment increases, continuing, it's hard to believe, but continuing increase of attention. And we've got to prepare for that from a public relations and communication standpoint as we move forward. You were discussing not knowing what it's like to be in the big chair at the end of the hall until you're in that chair. I can't imagine what day one must have been like. What, what, what was the first day like when you were in that chair? Here you've had all these years of prep in the SEC system, the SEC administrative system, but now you're the guy. What was that first day like? I'm going to talk about two first days, if I may. So my, my first day officially as commissioner was the Monday after our spring meeting in Destin back in 2015. And I purposely on that day, because it was June and we didn't have any of our contests going on, it was all postseason, I took the day to write a whole bunch of notes and letters and emails to people who helped me get here to just say thank you. And I had done some research. I wrote to my second grade teacher, who was one of those people that you just remember inspired me as a young person. I wrote to my college baseball coach about a particular moment. Um, in my college experience where he helped me understand what leadership really was. And at that point, I wasn't at the end of the hallway sitting in a commissioner's chair as a freshman on a baseball team who was a backup catcher. And he intersected me and helped me understand more about leadership. Uh, an author named John Ortberg, who uh, in a moment in my adult life when I needed to rethink how I was living, I uh, encountered a book he'd written called The Life You've Always Wanted. And I saw that title, I'm like, hey, yeah, that's like the, the secret. And it wasn't a secret. It was just a, uh, a moment where I had to rethink uh, some of my commitments and principles that I talked about earlier. So that's, that's really what I did on day one, a lot of phone calls. Day two, reality started to hit, though. But the next week, I moved into the commissioner's office. You know, Mike Slide, my predecessor, after our spring meetings, was, was packing up and moving out that week. And I remember that first day sitting at the desk I now occupy uh, at 8 in the morning, kind of overwhelmed for a few minutes because I had visited this very office in 1998 when I was uh, 33 years old. I was commissioner of the Southland Conference. I was coming here to meet with Roy Kramer 
and, and remembering the first time I walked in here thinking, well, I'm in the office of the SEC commissioner, a place that on that, that day when I was actually in here, I occupied. So I, I dealt with the awe for about 15 minutes. And then again, I think something walked through my door or came to me on the phone where you're like, oh, you're the leader now. And uh, the distinction between kind of being an advisor and then being in the chair to decide is one that, that I can't uh, overstate. You know, when, you're, when you move into those roles, and again, I'd had it before, you're listening to advisors or when you're an associate commissioner or executive associate commissioner, you're saying, here's what I think. And then ultimately, the commissioner has to decide. And that is a change in, in mentality where you listen, you listen, and then you decide as opposed to being able to just contribute to the conversation. And, and that was present in both of those first days that you're ultimately a decider on certain issues. And those decisions have impact. You noted that book. It intrigues me. Uh, what did you want to do differently? How did you want to live your life differently? Well, my first visit, ironically, to the SEC office was scheduled for September of 97. And as I traveled here, I was in the Atlanta airport, and, and I passed out and ended up spending a night in the hospital with uh, a, 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 an irregular heartbeat, a cardiac arrhythmia. Atrial fibrillation is what it, they called. And I was at a time where, it, at that point, I was in my early 30s, two kids, wasn't sleeping, wasn't exercising, wasn't eating right. I was drinking a ton of lattes, and there's a Seinfeld episode where Kramer got free lattes, and he walks out of a store just jittery and talking fast. And flat out, that knocked me on my back. And, you know, in that moment, uh, I was in a bathroom when I passed out. Um, and needed some medical help, you, you get through that, and you're like, wow, this can't stay the same. And I spent about six months visiting with kind of C-suite people, if you will. Living, I lived in Dallas at the time, vice presidents of J.C. Penney and a company called EDS that Ross Perot had started, uh, uh, MCI, which is the predecessor of Verizon, and a number of other folks, just to say, you know, how do you balance things? And then I bought this book. So I have six months of notes trying to figure out, you know, how do I balance work and life and family? And I ended up reading this book. And in the book, there was a line that said, the problem with chasing balance is not that it's too great a goal, but that it's too, it's insufficient. I'm like, wow, I've spent all this time. And that altered just kind of how I, I thought about things. That you want to make full commitment to your, your, your wife, your children, your job. And it, it created uh, probably a five-year effort to say, here's um, the characteristics that describe me principles or priorities, if you will, um, that inform uh, principles that then inform my priorities. And uh, it was a, a good experience. I've not had a similar health problem since. I'm much more diligent in exercising. I, I probably should be like you and drink more protein shakes and less hamburgers, <laughs> but you know, life's a progression, so I'm not quite there yet, Marty. Yeah, I have an issue. Uh, I'm a little bit neurotic about all those things, brother, but uh, you are doing well. You look great. Uh, you know, you, you noted a moment ago all of those things in the what's next question, like the, the, the pending television negotiations and all of those things. I can't imagine the quantity of challenges on your desk, but what would you say are the greatest challenges that you face as SEC commissioner? Well, if I could just reduce it to one, I actually have five pages of like revolving priorities that I review, and things move 
on and off. Um, Just quickly, one is the amount of transition we've had in leadership roles. We have great leaders on our campuses. Uh, My predecessors had the benefit of really stable uh, leadership at the presidential level and the athletic director level. You know, we had athletic directors who'd served for 15, 20, 25 years. And those life cycles have shortened. So that causes the need to reinforce why have we made certain decisions, reinforce a culture of collegiality that's worked really well, even in a very competitive situation. And I've placed that one actually at the top of the priorities because for any organization to thrive, there has to be cohesion and collaboration among its leadership to make that work, and we're reinforcing that on a regular basis. And uh, I'm grateful for the infusion of new thinking and new thoughts and new perspectives, and also that those uh, have th- those individuals have embraced the culture and being a part of the Southeastern Conference in such a unique way. So, so that's one. You know, the changing media environment. Uh, I, I put two or maybe one A. Uh, we have great. Uh, agreements with CBS and ESPN and then the SEC ESPN network. They work really well, but none of us can be blind to the fact that media is changing all around us. You know, like you and I aren't, aren't doing a radio interview. We're, we're doing a podcast. Well, five years right. ago, there were some of those things, but we've seen that aspect of media mushroom where you can go to deliver specific content to people. What does that mean for the future? How do we adapt? How can we make our our televised contests more interactive? How can we provide programming that attracts people in? And it may be a, a more niche driven, uh, but there are a lot of people that want to see certain aspects of college sports in different angles, uh, including behind the scenes. So, so that's second. Um, you know, the, the, the litigation issue is real, and I never want to overstate that, but we may have to adjust, um, and it's a, it's a reality around college sports. Uh, we think we do things incredibly well. Uh, I, I watch right now young people who are, have finished their careers at our schools and are perhaps pursuing NFL careers, or even some who've decided to transfer. And over and over on their social media, they're making these statements about how great their experience was at, at their SEC university. We have to keep that at the forefront of what we do. And we want to be ultra competitive. Uh, we've got uh, some of these pressures here. But fundamentally, when you get through a culture, you get through media, you get through litigation, you always come back to say the support and experience provided to our student-athletes in this league has risen to a point where it is second to none, where if you want to challenge yourself competitively and be supported in a marvelous fashion, uh, we can do that in the Southeastern Conference. And that's not really a challenge. That's a reality and something that we should embrace. So those are four quick issues that are are kind of top of mind in an almost daily circumstance. Much of it, though, being very good because we're doing things really well in the SEC. So there are a couple of questions I'd like to, to hit you with on issues in collegiate athletics right now that are that are kind of overarching, not just in the Southeastern Conference, but nationwide. And, and one of those narratives right now is about player compensation. Some folks feel like amateur players at the collegiate level deserve to be compensated. It's a very complicated issue, Greg, very complicated. What are the variables involved that make that difficult from your perspective? Well, there's there's 
some realities, which is the the revenue has increased significantly over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, the compensation provided to individuals, particularly coaches, uh, generates a lot of headlines, uh, and, and that creates some perceptions. You see at our level, full stadiums, full arenas, full baseball stadiums, uh, and we have had the issue introduced both both by student athletes, current and former, and through some of the litigation efforts going back to the O'Bannon uh, lawsuit, O'Bannon versus the NCAA. So those put those those rallies put the issues uh, on the agenda. Uh, on the other side, I think we in college athletics have done a poor job communicating about how well supported student athletes are. Uh, in their endeavors, so these these compensation issues may lead to headlines. What what's not seen is uh, the significant support structure that's built into each of our athletics programs, be it academic support, uh, medical support, uh, nutritional support, or the new manifestation is psychological, mental health support for student athletes. Um, I have been clear that I believe. Uh, the compensation, really the financial support provided to student-athletes should be tied directly to their educational pursuits and their competitive endeavors. And and that's the appropriate level. We moved the cost of attendance my first year as commissioner as part of scholarships, so there's more to help student-athletes meet their needs as students that's provided um, through their financial uh, support. I think that is is where the limit is. There are are other aspects of, of travel that are unique here. And we don't exist as a professional league, and we shouldn't exist as a professional league. Uh, we, we wouldn't do that very well compared to the NFL or NBA. What we do well is we educate, seen by over 20 graduate patches on Alabama football players playing in that national championship game. Um, and, and that's modeled throughout this league. I don't want to sacrifice the educational endeavor for expansion further of the commercial endeavor around college athletics. We're already challenged with that now, and we have a responsibility to keep that narrow so that young people have a four- or five-year experience to pursue their education and also to succeed competitively. What an answer. Wow. Um, I appreciate your candor. That was great. Uh, And you know what, Marty? People disagree with that. And the beauty of this is we ought to be in in dialogue. We should share our perspectives and opinions. I have respect for those who view things differently. I I seek to understand uh, before I'm trying to be understood. But at the same time, uh, in college sports, we should never lose our direct attachment to the educational mission of our universities. That's been a challenge for 100 years. It'll be a challenge for the next 100 years. Uh, yet we do we do support young people incredibly well in the Southeastern Conference. Yeah, I just I go round and round and round about that particular issue, and we don't need to get off in a rabbit hole. But in my mind, like in my in my heart, I say no, they shouldn't be paid. But I'm also not them. Right, like I'm not those right. young men who are out there playing ball and getting this education and all these things, and their coach is making seven and a half million dollars, and these stadiums are full because their name's on the back of that jersey. So I really do see both sides. Um, a couple more things, and I'll get you out of here, brother. Another thing that we continually hear, especially in this past month, is the whole playoff expansion narrative. It's an ad nauseum. Everybody has an opinion. 
What is your position on college football playoff expansion? Uh, my position is that the expansion of the national championship competition from two under the old BCS format to four under the college football playoff format has worked very well. It worked well this year and it can continue to work well in the future. And that's where my focus and support is. Might the current system be improved in different ways? Uh, it, it may, but uh, I'm not an advocate for expanding beyond four. Uh, and I'm, I'm one who suggests that any of that consideration uh, should be a very deliberate. If you look at the expansion from two to four, that was a 10-year process. And I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't, I'm not one who is inclined to open the door, but every year a part of our responsibility as commissioners is to look at what happens in the playoff and make sure we're meeting our original objectives, which I'm one who thinks we're doing and doing very well. I'm with you. I like four very much. Uh, I well, think if we... You know, I also understand, and I jumped in there just to follow up, I went to seven bowl games. And I started with a 6-6 six and six Vanderbilt team playing on, on ESPN in the Texas Bowl on a Thursday night. That was an important opportunity for that team. Uh, I went to the, the Capital One Bowl and watched a Kentucky team that hadn't played in that bowl reach uh, a 10-win season for the first time since the 70s. That was an important opportunity for that team and a whole lot of things in between that are, are part of this ecosystem, which does include the 14 playoff couple more promise and I'll, yep. <laughs> i know you, no, you have a real life to worry about um i saw on your social accounts a photo of a neon sign that sta- that states do something great now right. i will ask you to, to brag a minute all right what do you feel like you've done that's great during your time as commissioner oh wow i, I think there's a lot one time i put together a sheet so i'm going to put it at the top couple of things we've done around student-athletes. We created a, a football student-athlete leadership council, men's basketball student-athlete leadership council, and a women's basketball student-athlete leadership council. These are highly recruited scholarship student-athletes that we're missing in the traditional student-athlete advisory committee work. And to be able to, to bring those individuals in, to identify some issues, to engage them in deep dialogue about what's happening around their experience on our campuses, their experience around conference or national championships and what they see for themselves is at the high of the, the meaningless. Right behind that, we created a student-athlete career tour. It's happened every December for the last three years where we bring in uh, about 28 student-athletes, and they've been to Delta Airlines. It happens in Atlanta around our, our football championship game. Uh, we brought them to Delta Airlines, Chick-fil-A, UPS, the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Braves, uh, any number of others to to say, look, you're about to go through transition from being a student and an athlete into a career. We want to help facilitate that. Um, and we've had people, young people, have jobs out of those encounters uh, as, as our career tour. They've had career opportunities. And we're actually trying to figure out how do you multiply um, that 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 opportunity, that career tour. You know, around um, officiating my first year, we were talking about, hey, could you centralize replay so we have more correct outcomes? I think what we've done in football has helped improve our officiating. Not that it's perfect, uh, but that was a monumental uh, and a resource commitment um, of great importance. We've done the same in men's basketball. 
the continued competitive success. We won five national championships last academic year. Uh, we finished 11th or set in second place on 11 different occasions, some of those to SEC teams. But the ability to actually elevate our sustained competitive success, uh, even over the last decade, uh, is an important point of pride. The SEC graduate patch, Marty, is one that where we were trying to figure out how do you convey that we're educating young people. And it was a lot of work. And actually, the folks at the University of Arkansas helped us with the final design, where when you graduate and you continue competing, you get to wear that emblem on your on your jersey, on your uniform. What I never anticipated was how much that would mean to a student athlete who gets to put that patch on after three and a half, four years of higher education and then walk out onto the field, the track, the court, uh, the baseball diamond, the softball diamond with a patch that says they're a graduate. Uh, I've watched social media feeds from student athletes showing incredible emotion, maybe even more emotion than when they actually receive the diploma, that they get to walk out with that designation. And what what you hear is there's been a lot of student-athlete-focused work that we've done uh, while sustaining competitive success that that ranks among um, the, the accomplishments of significance. And uh, I'll say maybe last for this, because I could give you a 30-minute podcast on everything just on accomplishments and progress. Um, I'm really proud of our staff, of the people that I work with in this office and their engagement and dedication. You know, all of these things don't happen by themselves. So I can come up with an idea um, and have some help in figuring out whether it's a good idea or not. And then people have to carry forward and implement uh, those ideas. And whether it's the It Just Means More campaign um, that you see on our advertising and, our, and around our venues, or um, maybe a little thing like that graduate pat, the, patch, the execution of our staff makes that possible. Last thing, you are in one of the most prestigious, most important, most scrutinized leadership positions in sports. What makes a good leader? Someone who's prepared uh not fully, but uh, fully prepared to take on the issues of the day. Uh, and that requires a commitment to, to lifelong learning and education, no matter your position or your age. Uh, there is a humility that must be present that acknowledges, I know a lot, but I don't know everything. So I'm going to have to rely on the people around me, uh, the ability to block out the noise and the critics and focus on uh, what you believe as a leader are the priorities and the principles that inform decision-making. And you have to then make decisions and and live with those outcomes and be fully prepared to live with those outcomes. Um, I've had the opportunity to to learn from uh, a number of great leaders, uh, whether it's in interpersonal relationships or uh, through different learning, whether it be reading or, or studying those individuals. And in each, I think, show those characteristics of uh, humility, engagement, and lifelong learning, the ability to withstand the pressure, uh, and, and the ability to still to find space and time uh, to enjoy uh, the outcomes of that leadership work. Well, you've done a tremendous job. Um, the, the, the proof's in the pudding, as we say down south, man. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your insight, and uh, it's been 
such a great joy to spend this time with you fellowshipping, man. Thank you. Well, thank you. And uh, part of all of it is, you know, I, I put on a pair of jeans and pull down a ball cap and go to a dirt track and watch car racing for a, a few hours every summer. That's that's one of those enjoyable aspects as well that keeps it centered. It was wonderful to be with you at the dirt track. I could tell that you were in your element and you were at home and you could not. I don't think we could have wiped the smile off your face with a pressure washer. It was, no, uh, that was fun. It was fun to see. That was that Thank was a you, good brother. good good evening. Thank you. I told you guys. I told you you would be fascinated. I'm I'm fascinated. I want. I just want to make sure you guys understand. When I chatted with Greg, it was eleven o'clock in the morning. 11 a.m. to about 11.30 or so, something like that. And as you heard him say, he had already had four extensive conversations with various athletic directors within his conference about pressing issues within the conference or within their respective programs. Before 11 o'clock, he's had four in-depth conversations. Marty, you're forgetting something. The SEC officer in Central Time Zone, so it's only 10 a.m. for him. That's a very good point. That's a very good point, Travis. That's very astute. That Buckeye education coming through right there. Somebody came to somebody's not partly cloudy this morning. Some of us may be otherwise. Um, but what unique perspective on what he faces every single day. And I appreciated his candor about those issues that are pressing, whether that's evolving media. That CBS deal that he was discussing that's up in 2023 is going to be the most coveted collegiate property maybe ever. Uh, that SEC number one game of the week is a gold mine, And so that negotiation is going to be very interesting to see how that unfolds. And, of course, it's been a staple on CBS for so many years, from Uncle Vern and Gary to now Brad Nessler. Um, they do such a great job. And it is a staple of collegiate experience. It always has a big game feel. And think about it. That 3.30 window in the SEC, that's a standalone game. There are no other games going on. The games are either early or they're at night. That 3.30 window, that's one game. All the eyeballs in the South are on that game. It just feels important, right? You know, having grown up in the South, uh, it just, that game just feels important. Am I wrong? I mean, look, man, you're, you're a Midwestern kid. You went to Ohio State. You're a Big Ten guy to the hilt. But am I wrong that that particular game just feels so important? I hate to admit it, but you're right. As much as I hate that slogan, it just means more. They're not wrong. I got a little taste of it this past year going down there, LSU, and it really does mean more to them. If I would have had 45 minutes, if I would have had 45 minutes with, with Greg, I was going to ask him who came up with it just means more. I'd love to know who just who, who said that comment. Maybe that'll be our follow-up conversation. We'll get into that. But just a fascinating conversation and someone I admire in so many ways because I I couldn't do it. I couldn't have all of that on my desk every single day and every single minute with so many people counting on your leadership and so many every move you make be having such tremendous after effects. And I'm not misinterpreting what I heard. He unequivocally doesn't feel like collegiate athletes should be paid in a different structure than they are right now, right? That's what I heard. Correct. He didn't mince any words. And I meant what I said 
the aftermath of, of his commentary, I, I really see both sides. There's a very distinct feeling that comes with college football and college basketball specifically that it feels it, it just it is a business, but it doesn't feel like one in a lot of ways. And I think it's a separating factor. And I like that feeling. But I'm a 42-year-old guy who benefits from that, right? I have my career because of that. I'm not Zion Williamson or Christian Wilkins or Trevor Lawrence or Tua Tonga-Vailoa or any number of hundreds, hundreds of players. So, and, and forget hundreds. I mean, you got to think about, I mean, you, you heard Greg mention Ed O'Bannon. I mean, this thing, this goes way, way back. You can think about Jalen Rose. When we, we had Jalen was our second, wasn't he the second podcast, Travis? So I think he was the second podcast. And you go all the way back to Jalen and Chris Weber being overseas when they were on the Fab Five and seeing their jerseys or whatnot, their memorabilia hanging in the window and going, wait a minute, somebody's making money off of this. It ain't me. And so I genuinely see both sides uh, in a very complicated issue. Some people are, are extremely – many people are extreme on either side of the issue. Um, I, maybe, I'm a, maybe I'm boring. I'm living on the fence on that one. And, Marty, you have a different perspective. You get to know these athletes on a little more personal level than the fans do just watching on TV. So you see what they go through and what their life is like and understand why they want to get paid. Absolutely. Uh, that's why, I, again, this is a whole other uh, rabbit hole, but these young men that sit out of these bowl games, good for you. That I would. I would if, if I'm DeAndre Baker or if I'm Leonard Fournette or if I'm Christian McCaffrey, you bet your ass I'm sitting out. Think about Will Greer. We had him on the podcast. He has a wife and a daughter to think about. So one bowl game, what was that one bowl game really going to do for him in his career? Wasn't probably going to propel him any further up in the draft, but an injury could have hurt him even worse. I'm so glad. I'm so glad for Jalen Smith that he has had such a tremendous career. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that the Cowboys waited on him, that they, they did take a chance. They took a chance and drafted this amazing player from Notre Dame who against your Buckeyes had a catastrophic injury. And the Cowboys waited on him, and he is a phenomenal football player. And I'm glad that that worked out for him. But that was the moment. That was the line of demarcation right there, Jalen Smith, where these guys went, wait a minute, and their agents, right, Who their, their potential representation, wait a minute, I don't know if we should be playing in this game or not. And when Leonard and Christian made the decision to sit, I think it just changed. It changed everything. Um, all right, we're way we're way off the reservation now. Uh, but, but thanks so much to to Greg Sankey, uh, SEC Commissioner, for his tremendous insight. I'm better for it, and I'm certainly smarter for it. Um, and think about this: we always talk about not wanting to be the guy to replace the guy. Commissioner Sankey had that role. He had to go in there and fill the void and replace Commissioner Mike Slive who was a huge influence in the college world. Just that name. I mean, just that name, right? Like Mike Slive. I mean, that name is synonymous with intercollegiate athletic excellence. And you're right. Sankey had to come in and, and follow that. But uh, no pressure at all. And, man, he has thrived. He has done just such an, a, a tremendous job in a hard job. Um, so 
as you guys know, I'm always intrigued by Twitter. And I just think that it can be the greatest of mediums and the most amazing things can happen. And I also think that it is a cesspool of hatred. I saw the most interesting thing. So I can put a video up of Trevor Lawrence throwing a 62-yard touchdown pass, whatever the number was, to Justin Ross. Or I can put up a video. I, I can be standing on the sideline right beside Dabo Sweeney when he's going crazy when they have a pick six on the third play of the national championship game. I can put those videos up, and they'll do 30, 40, 50,000 views, whatever. I can be standing in that exact same spot and post a video randomly, just thought it was interesting the way that the uh, moment unfolded, where a young lady runs out on the field to protest something or other, and the enforcement, law enforcement folks, uh, take her off, and I just happen to be standing right by the path through which they took her. And it did how many views now, Travis? One point something million, I think. Hold on a second, let me check. And that's just from my feed. Who knows what it's done from other ones? There was another Twitter account that stole the video, posted as if it was theirs, and it did 500,000 on its own. Just on that one? Yeah. Right. And I don't even know what mine is. I know it's more than a million. I'm, it was a million before I left the stadium the other night. You have 1.2 million. Okay. So you're looking at 1.7, at least 1.7 from my feed and then whomever this other feed was that took it. And, uh, that's, I mean, it just, is there something weird about that? Like, what, what is that, Travis? Explain that to me. I like to believe she was protesting that Ohio State should have been in the college football playoffs. <laughs> Works for me, brother. That'll work for me. Uh, I guess I can get behind that. Spoken like a scarlet and gray son of the Buckeye Nation. Uh, thank you guys so much for hanging out. Uh, what an awesome opportunity to interview. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, again, I appreciate his insight and his time. I learned so much. Uh, I'm appreciative of Travis scheduling that interview with the commissioner. I'm so appreciative of Louise being crazy enough to let us do it. And thank you to you guys for your commitment to it because I love to hear your feedback. Please let us know your feedback when you listen. Uh, I'm at Marty Smith ESPN. Travis is at Travis Rockhold. And we love that feedback. It's appreciated. Go on iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you think there. I know it seems trivial, but it matters to us, and it certainly matters to the bosses that you guys subscribe, rate, and review. So please do that. And as I always do, I want to thank our military before we get out of here. There's a reason we're free, and it's because of our men and women in uniform who work every single day away from their families sacrificing so that we can be free and live in the greatest country in the world. So thank you so much to our military members. Uh, that is episode 39 of the Marty Smith's America podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time around.